Welcome to the Queue for Two, your podcast companion for learning all about your favorite theme park attractions. Whether listening at home or while waiting in the queue, we'll fill you in on all the information you need to get the most out of your ride experience. I'm your host, Ryan, and joining me as always is the swashbuckling Matthew. Today, we're talking about the history and hidden secrets behind my favorite ride in Disney's Adventureland, Pirates of the Caribbean. You mean the Caribbean? Ahoy there, Ryan. Oh, we got a Caribbean guy here. (laughs) Do you think Disney knew what they were doing when they first made that? They just realized they were like, ah, oh, well, we'll figure it out. It was funny doing research for this episode. It was almost like flip flopping every like different video I watched of somebody talking about it. Caribbean, Caribbean, Caribbean. (laughs) And here we are. I genuinely don't even know what I say. I really have no clue. Well, we know that that factors into your day-to-day conversations pretty frequently, so... Of course. You should you should know what it is. Of course. All right. Well, Matthew, today as we're starting to talk about pirates, I would assume this is an attraction that you're pretty familiar with. Would I be correct? Yes, I would say so. It's definitely one that I ride a lot when we go. It's a, it's a good time when it's open. Obviously, there are some times where it's not open, (laughs) but I do love the smell. I love the attraction altogether. I'm excited to learn more about it today. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a pretty classic attraction. And of course, I would say one of the more famous attractions at Walt Disney World. And it was interesting doing a deep dive into this, how much history about the attraction I had no idea about previously. As we board our vessel and go into the salty seas, Let's talk some more about the history behind Disney's Pirates of the Caribbean attraction. Yo-ho. All right. So, Matthew, our story begins in the late 1950s when Walt Disney was looking to expand Disneyland with a new section of the park based off of 19th century Louisiana. This new section of the park would be called New Orleans Square. The original goal for this section of the park was to incorporate a new pirate-themed walk-through attraction to accompany the shops and the restaurants. Now, Matthew, when I say walk-through attraction, what did you think Walt Disney originally had in mind for this experience? So I would think like bridges and everything, there's still water. I still picture water. But I do picture, like you said, just a walk through. There's no boat. There's none of that nonsense. In today's world, I picture stores. (laughs) You're just walking through and it's all just gift shop all the way from the start to the finish. But, you know, he was a visionary. So I really am not sure exactly what he meant at the time. Yeah. So you're you're kind of on the money. So the original attraction, it would have to feature water because you can't have pirates without pirate ships. I mean, those go hand in hand. You mean Hand and hook. Hand and hook, of course. (laughs) While guests would be walking through this attraction, the other big change, originally, this ride was not going to have any animatronics. Rather, it was going to be a walk-through wax museum, and the whole point of the attraction was going to be to depict important moments in famous pirates' lives and like general pirate mythology, if you will. Okay, interesting. You lost me with wax figures, but I guess you brought me back with prominent pirates. They started construction. Essentially, they were digging a huge basement under New Orleans Square where this attraction was going to live. And they started that construction in 1961. But progress halted when the Imagineers and Disney shifted their focus towards another big project. So, Matthew, around 1961, what kind of big project do you think that Disney Imagineers would be focused on? 1961. It's been a long day, but I don't know my years. I'm going to take a guess. Let's say the Epcot Ball. So, it's a good guess, and it actually kind of ties into that. So, this was around the point where Walt Disney actually was thinking a lot about Epcot and his vision for what he wanted Epcot to be. But in order to fund his vision for Epcot, he would have to have pretty significant financial backing and other areas of support to bring that project to a reality. So they actually shifted their focus towards getting some notoriety by participating in the 1964-1965 World's Fair. Oh, classic World Fair. 
Yeah, so Disney and the Imagineers were actually using the World's Fair as an opportunity to innovate some new technology, showcase that they were spearheading the drive into the future, and hopefully in turn this would garner some support for Epcot down the line. So during this little period of time prepping for the World's Fair, great strides were made in audio animatronics, ushering in an entirely new era for Disney. Now, Matthew, you pointed out that it was strange that they wanted to make this a wax museum instead of an animatronics attraction. Well, that's because animatronics were a completely new thing in this time period. Okay. In fact, the first ever Disney animatronic attraction was in 1963 with the Enchanted Tiki Room, where the animatronic parrot Jose was actually like kind of the first Disney audio animatronic. That is crazy to think about because I love the Tiki Room (laughs) and it's crazy to think about. I still love that show now. And to think that that's like the first animatronic, <laughs> like that's crazy. It's just weird to think about a world that we don't have audio animatronics or, of course, modern day rather than audio animatronics. It's more of digital controlled animatronics. Right. But yeah, it was actually around this time period that the Disney company then actually called Wed Enterprises was pioneering this technology. They first used the term commercially in 1961 and then filed the official trademark for it in 1964. And so while they were stepping away from the Wax Museum idea, Walt decided instead to build an attraction after the World's Fair that would incorporate two new technologies that they innovated for the World's Fair. The first, as we've been discussing, is these advances in audio animatronics. By this point, they made new animatronics for the Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln show, and the Carousel of Progress that were debuted at the World's Fair. So they had made a lot of strides from the Enchanted Tiki Room in that time, wanted to incorporate that into this new attraction. But then also, the other big point, they actually made It's a Small World for the World's Fair, and it was around this time that they figured out that this water boat ride system was a feasible way to move large volumes of guests through attractions. And they thought, well, It's pirates. We're working with pirate ships anyway. Let's incorporate it into a boat ride. Classic learning from themselves. I love it. And so then work officially began on the ride that we all know today, the first large scale Disney animatronic dark ride, Pirates of the Caribbean. As the ideas for this attraction continue to grow and expand during development, they actually realized that they would need to extend a large portion of the ride's show building outside of the park. So expanding from that original basement that they dug under New Orleans Square, they actually moved towards sticking a big part of the show building beyond the edges of the park. And this was the first attraction to actually do this. Now, several attractions follow suit. Are we talking about Haunted Mansion? We are talking about Haunted Mansion, Matthew. So that was the next ride to bridge that model, extending the show building out of the park. And then that's a pretty common thing done with Disney rides today. But yeah, Pirates was the first to actually do that. So this being a large scale audio animatronic attraction, Disney's really first attraction of this type, it took a little bit of time to develop. The ride officially opened at Disneyland on March 18th, 1967. Unfortunately, just three months after Walt's death on December 15th, 1966. This was the last Disney ride to be personally overseen by Walt Disney himself, and while Walt didn't live to see the opening of his most ambitious attraction to date, the ride was an instant success, and the animatronics continued to bring in large crowds for decades to come, and many say that this was one of the strongest points of Walt Disney's legacy in his theme park. Heck yeah, for sure. And I think, I don't know if you'll get into it, but I've definitely heard some rumors about, you know, his death and how they might have potentially incorporated his, uh, more than just his legacy into the ride. I don't know if you've heard any of that, if we'll talk about that, but yeah, what a ride. And for this to be his like last one that he oversaw, like he really went out with a bang. So that's a little bit of foreshadowing, Matthew, and we will definitely kind of dip into some of the, the shadier and spookier sides of this attraction. Oh, I'm excited. But yeah, so this ride, basically an instant success after it opened. Everybody loved it. It did extend to a number of the other Disney theme parks over the years. 
It opened at the Magic Kingdom December 15th, 1973. Again, not an opening day attraction for the Magic Kingdom. And actually, this is because there was a deviation from Pirates of the Caribbean that was originally meant to be an opening day attraction that instead of being Pirates-based, it would have been Old Western-based and been kind of like a cowboy shootout type experience. Well, I never. And this is kind of dipping into fun fact territory, but Matthew, I happen to know that you're a big fan of the Living with the Land attraction at Epcot. That is correct. Do you remember those two animatronic buffalo in Living with the Land? I do indeed. They were actually made for what the (laughs) Magic Kingdom attraction was supposed to be. That is crazy to think about, but yeah, that makes sense. Yep, and so once they made them and then realized they didn't have a place to stick them, they ended up shipping them over to Epcot. Uh, Epcot, perfect. I'm surprised they didn't send them to Animal Kingdom and just put them behind like a glass wall and say like, look, here's our buffalo exhibit. (laughs) They're real, I swear, like the other animals. (laughs) But looking at the other attractions, we had a version open in Tokyo on April 15th, 1983 version open in Paris on April 12th, 1992, and then last but not least, a version opening in Shanghai, June 16th, 2016. And it is worth noting, the Shanghai ride is very different from all the others. It follows a completely different story. There's actually some really neat animatronics of Davy Jones and some of his crew, and they use a lot of projection screen technology to tell an entirely different story. Hmm. But the other four rides they have their differences but are relatively similar okay now that we have gone through some basic initial history of the ride matthew are you ready to hear the official ride description for disney's pirates of the caribbean hold on let me buckle my shoes and put on my belt and my buckling swashbucklers hat and let's just buckle on out of here take some vitamin c shake out the scurvy and let's get on this boat All right, well, come aboard with me, Matthew, and let's talk about Disney's Pirates of the Caribbean. Board a weathered barge for a treacherous voyage to the 17th century, when rowdy rogues and ruthless rapscallions ransacked Caribbean sea towns. Sing along as pirates serenade you with their anthem, Yo-ho, yo-ho, a pirate's life for me. Sail past haunted Dead Man's Cove, Navigate cannon fire between a Caribbean fort and a striking 12-gun galleon. Behold boisterous buccaneers drunk on the spoils of plundering as flames engulf a seaside town. Be sure to keep a spry eye out for Captain Jack Sparrow from the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Ye beware, mateys. Dead men tell no tales. As always, Disney killing it with the description game. It's crazy to me how, and we'll get into it in a little bit, I'm assuming a little bit, with like the movies coming after the ride and how they've like incorporated that. But then the fact that that's like in the description of just like, find Jack Sparrow. Oh, also from the Disney hit classics, Pirates of the Caribbean movies. It's like, oh my God, I love it. You got to tie in that intellectual property, get that Disney money rolling. <laughs> and it is it is funny because this attraction did exist before the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Right. Obviously, now that we know that there are animatronics of Jack Sparrow in the ride. And so kind of moving on to the next portion of the history, I do want to talk about the revisions that this ride has seen over the years and some of the opinions and controversy that have come with some of the specific changes. So this ride has seen many revisions over the years. Before the late 1990s, the ride actually remained largely the same from when it opened, except for some small technologic upgrades and small design tweaks to individual characters in the attraction. The first notable change to the Disneyland attraction actually came in 1987, There was just a change to the queue. Okay. (laughs) They made a new queue extending the line and providing a bridge over the area for the queue for guests looking to bypass the line to get to other areas of the park. Apparently, this was a big bottleneck area before where crowds would gather, and so they just modified the queue to make it run a little bit smoother. Makes sense. Okay. But our first change to the attraction came around 1997 when we got some 
revisions to some of the scenes, including the famous pirates chasing women scene in which pirates were chasing after women with, we'll just say, not the best of intentions. That is correct. They changed the scene where the women were now carrying plates of food and alcohol, trying to shift the focus that the pirates were chasing after the booze and the food rather than the women themselves. Classic. Okay, got it. In the same scene, the famous lustful pirate or the pooped pirate as they're colloquially referred to, with a naked woman in the barrel behind them. That whole thing needed to be adjusted to modern times and was changed to what is now referred to as the gluttonous pirate, who instead just wanted to eat a lot of food and drink a lot of booze. And the woman in the barrel behind him was changed to a little cat that would poke his head out of the barrel. So far, everything... Everything has gotten better. I haven't found one thing that you've listed that has been a bad change. Those were were good changes indeed. It's also worth noting that around this time that changes were being made, there were also animatronics from the recently closed World of Motion at Epcot. Now the building is the building that houses Test Track. A number of animatronics, including some of the Conquistador soldiers on top of the wall in the scene, with the ship firing on the fort, a man pulling a rope, a donkey, a goat, and a few pigs were actually all moved over from that other attraction. The other notable change that came at this time, if you look in the scene where the pirates are dunking the mayor into a well, trying to get information out of him where the town's treasure is, the mayor's wife up in the window above him shouts at him to like not share information with the pirates and one of the pirates shoots her and she screams this blood curdling scream as she falls back into the window they adjusted that so that the scream is more of a shocked scream rather than an i'm dying (laughs) i got shot scream to amend that to make it a little bit less violent the next kind of big Sets of changes that came to the attraction were in 2006 when it was slated for a major overhaul. This is the point in time Disney had released the movie loosely based on the ride that was wildly successful, Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl, that premiered on June 28, 2003. And given the success of that movie and the upcoming sequels, they had slated the attraction to undergo several revisions and reopen with the premiere of the second movie, Dead Man's Chest, at the theme park. So just kind of running through some of the big changes that we saw here. The story of the ride in general was significantly altered. Now, instead of being a chain of just kind of tangentially related pirates ransacking a village, the whole story was changed to Barbosa and his band of pirates looking for Captain Jack, as Captain Jack was looking for the town's treasure. So the ship that's firing on the fort, originally there was an animatronic pirate there that many referred to as Blackbeard for his big bushy beard, was changed to an animatronic of Captain Barbosa, and new dialogue was recorded and added to that scene. And then it's also worth noting Barbosa was again updated in 2015 where he was changed out of his privateer outfit into uh, another outfit on the ride. Okay. The scene with the pirates dunking the mare in the well, like we had talked about before, the dialogue had now been changed. Instead of the pirates looking for treasure, they were looking for Captain Jack Sparrow. And this is the place where we see the first Jack animatronic that was added to the scene, hiding behind some dresses behind the crowd of people. Are you sure it's not just Johnny Depp back there? They just pay him to constantly stay back there and just pop out. Well, Matthew, it's really funny that you say that, because as I was researching this, I actually found out around the time of the premiere, there was a short period of time where Johnny Depp was hanging out on the ride, and there's some video of him shocking guests by like directly interacting <laughs> with them on the ride. Man, wouldn't that be a, a trip, man? You could never ride that ride again. I think it would just like you have to like let that be your memory of the ride. That would be a wild experience, and I agree, it'd never live up to that ever again. Yep. 
But so that Jack animatronic was added there. There were two other Jack animatronics that were added. The gluttonous pirate that we talked about before, now instead of speaking about food and drink, spoke about his map of the town's treasure room and a key to the town's treasure. And the little cat that was behind him was now replaced with none other than Captain Jack Sparrow, peeking up from the barrel trying to get at the the map and the key. Our little chase scene there was actually altered. The change of the pirates chasing after the food wasn't a strong enough change for many audience members. And so now there was a pirate carrying treasure being chased by a woman with a pitchfork, and they kind of reversed it where now at most of the attractions, it's like at most of the versions of the attractions, it's the women holding their own and chasing after the pirates, like chasing them out of their homes. There they go. They got it right. They tried to do a cheap change the first time, but they got it right on the second one. They finally met the path where they changed it enough. Met the bare minimum of what it should have been. The bare human decency. The last big change that they incorporated was a new scene added at the end of the ride with the third Captain Jack animatronic in a big treasure room enjoying the treasure that he found. It's also worth noting there's a treasure chest in the attraction that was added. And I couldn't figure out if it's actually in this treasure room scene or if it's earlier in the attraction at Disneyland. But they do add a replicant chest of the Aztec gold from Pirates of the Caribbean Curse of the Black Pearl. Okay, got it. A couple other changes came as well. The lift at the end of the Disneyland attraction now included some lines from Davy Jones. There was also a misty projection added at the beginning of the attractions that showed a projection of Davy Jones speaking to the audience, and then in 2011 was actually updated to include Blackbeard some of the time. But then these were removed again in 2018, and the original dialogue for the attraction was brought back. And lastly, in June of 2018... The big other glaring problem with this ride was finally addressed. Yes, it was. (laughs) There is a scene where pirates were auctioning off women in the town to be pirate brides, which is really not cool. And it took them, surprisingly, a very long time to change the scene on what is supposed to be a family-friendly attraction. But now... The redhead animatronic was changed to be a female pirate, and she is helping lead an auction not of people, but of goods. So different things that the pirates stole from the village, including like eggs, art, things of that nature. Again, bare human decency. You met the limit. Congrats. I can't believe it took you this long, but you made it. But... Tokyo Disney still has the original auction scene. (laughs) Oh, gosh, darn it. Okay, well, well, we we tried, I guess. It's uh, it's it's getting there. They're making they're making changes, at least uh, at the, the two here in the States. They've changed it pretty significantly from its original form. And it's it's such a strange thing to see online, too. There are a lot of people that defend the original attraction aggressively yeah and it's just a it is a very weird hill to die on yep there was actually one of the original imagineers associated with the attraction was on record as saying that they should change the attraction to boy scouts of the caribbean instead of pirates of the caribbean because he felt like the changes were not how pirates should behave and like sure it's not how the real pirates would have behaved but it's a kids ride but you don't need to be putting those things front and center for a family-friendly attraction right it's a kids ride this isn't a biographical like history channel ride that shows what they were doing they're singing and just like partying basically it's like it's a uh, I, yeah it's a weird hill to die on and i really don't get it but it's like uh it's a change that needed to be made it needed to be made a long time ago And the fact that it was just made, you know, not even that many years ago, but it's at least made at this point in the States and maybe eventually all of them, they'll catch up. I mean, the fact of the matter is it is creating a more family friendly experience that is safer for children and all audiences to be able to attend. And 
I think that is a definitely a good thing and good steps that Disney has taken as they make an effort, at least in in some areas, to change appropriately with the times. Yep. But Matthew, that's all I have on the history of our attraction here. Those were the most recent changes that I could find online. Now, of course, probably when we release this episode, there's going to be a new change that just came out. Now, but <laughs> if you're if you're listening to this in the future, there might be other changes. Hopefully, this attraction will continue to be updated and evolve, even if that's just in little ways. They've already made several little tweaks to other technical aspects of the ride over the years as well that continue to enrich the attraction and keep it updated for a good family experience. Now that we've gone through some history, how about we get into some territory of some fun facts? Oh, I love fun and I love facts, so hit me with it. So here we go. While the ride was in production, Matthew, did you know that it wasn't called Pirates of the Caribbean? That doesn't surprise me. They wanted to put wax figures in that, so who knows? What was it called? (laughs) So Walt's original vision for the attraction, he actually called the ride the Blue Bayou Lagoon. Okay, that makes sense. You did tell me it was supposed to be a bayou ride first, so that I don't know why I didn't put two and two together. And there's actually a lot of old videos of Walt Disney starting to premiere concept art for the attraction and talking about the attraction, where he just straight up calls it the Blue Bayou Lagoon. You know, the BBL. (laughs) The good old BBL, man. (laughs) They did, of course, end up changing the name before it opened to Pirates of the Caribbean, but they did pay homage to the original name by Walt Disney. In the Disneyland version, there is a restaurant that is attached to the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. We're actually in the first part of the attraction. Riders can see people just eating at the restaurant. Heck yeah. And the restaurant is called the Blue Bayou Restaurant. Oh, that's perfect. This is sort of a tangent, but I love when they incorporate the rides and restaurants into each other. Obviously, you can't take away from the ride, but it doesn't seem like it takes away from it that much. I, would, I wouldn't think so. It's, again, Disney magic incorporating all that kind of stuff. It makes for good eating experience, and it makes for good ride experience. It does indeed. Kind of mashing the two together, it makes both of them a more unique experience, in my opinion, which, as we know, Disney is very into making very unique and innovative experiences. Yep. It's not a theme park. It's an experience for the most part. (laughs) Kind of keeping on the theme of Walt Disney in those same promotional videos of Walt kind of promoting the attraction before it came out. One of Walt's favorite things to talk about was how his version of New Orleans Square actually cost as much as the real Louisiana Purchase. Of course, not adjusting for inflation. The original Louisiana purchase was around $15 million, and the total cost of New Orleans Square was around $18 million. Oh, wow. Walt really loved quoting those numbers and talking about how a dollar back then certainly went a lot further than it does (laughs) at that time. (laughs) Jeez. So that was a a funny little nod that uh, particularly tickled Walt Disney. Sticking with the New Orleans theme, there is actually another inspiration from New Orleans itself, aside from just the general inspiration of the entire New Orleans Square. Atop the attraction at Disneyland, there is a spire, and this facade of the spire was directly inspired from the Cabildo in Jackson Square, New Orleans, which was actually the building where the Louisiana Purchase was signed. Oh, wow. So another little nod to the OG Louisiana Purchase in Disneyland's New Orleans Square. Also talking about the construction in New Orleans Square, Matthew, have you heard of the elusive Club 33? I have indeed. I actually just learned about that, I think, since our last trip, but I did hear about it and it blows my mind. But yeah, tell me tell me more about it. So let me ask you a follow-up question, too. With Club 33, have you heard of the Dream Suite or 21 Royal? No, I'm not sure if I've heard of this. So those are a little bit more of a kept secret. So for those of you that don't know, Club 33 is this kind of exclusive club that, from what I've gathered, is mostly celebrities and like really high rollers that come to the park that kind of get access to this exclusive little club and lounge that they sometimes have dinners and different events at as well. There's also what was originally an apartment 
built above the Pirates of the Caribbean attraction. This suite above the attraction at Disneyland was supposed to be Walt's updated apartment. So Walt has another apartment in Main Street, Mm -hmm. and they made this kind of bigger, more lavish apartment for Walt and his family. Well, of course, unfortunately, as we previously discussed, Walt Disney passed away before the ride was even open, but they had this kind of apartment there. So it was first converted to offices for the employees. And then for a long period of time, it was actually a public gallery where they would have like art shows and things of that nature open to the public. Oh, wow. Okay. Then it was closed and they converted it back into kind of a condo that they called the Dream Suite that later became 21 Royal, which is this lavish, beautiful room. Matthew, if you had to take a guess, how much do you think it would cost to stay in that room? I'm thinking it's got to be like five grand a night. Fifteen grand a night. Man, that's a hmm. Yeah, you got to have some money uh, to be able to uh, stay at this place, it seems. Good gosh. Okay. So if your (laughs) name is Beyonce, then you can stay right. in this lavish my goodness apartment okay. basically for the night. There is a way that you can actually get into there without paying. For a period of time it was actually like a night in the suite was a prize to various contests that Disney would run. Now of late I'm not aware of any contests that have been run lately. Okay. But it is something that maybe we'll we'll see in the future and then we can have uh Q for two's night party above Pirates of the Caribbean. All right, you stay there and I'll stay in like Cinderella's castle and we'll 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 meet each other. We'll we'll wave at each other from like above the tree line. We'll just wave at each other. Pop out of the little window. Hi. Hi. <laughs> we get little radios. Oh, it'd be perfect. Anyway, all right. But so there's kind of that there's that rich network in New Orleans Square of high class Disney life. Yeah. And it's one of those that they're tucked away. And if you didn't know, I know I've seen like I think it's just like a basically like a button and a speaker for the the club. And so it's like if you don't know what it is, it doesn't really stick out. It doesn't have a sign that says like, hey, this is the exclusive club up here. And so it's like you really just kind of have to know and you also have to be invited like that sort of thing. You can't just like walk up and say the code word and they let you in. It's not obvious in the sense that it's rubbing it in your face of like, oh, you're at Disney World, but you can't afford for this expensive stuff. So like there are the like the high ballers that can do that stuff. But at least for like those of us that are just going more on a budget, obviously, or even not even on a budget, just normal person's salary. <laughs> it's not rubbing it in your face, I guess. Exactly. We kind of been talking some more about New Orleans Square, kind of dialing back into the attraction. We talked a little bit about some differences of the different versions of the attraction. It's also worth noting that the ride length is pretty different at the different parks. Okay. So Magic Kingdom's ride is about eight and a half minutes long, and that's actually the shortest version of Pirates of the Caribbean. No way. Which is wild to me because that's the only one I know. I haven't ridden any of the other ones. But kind of researching it a little bit, the one in Tokyo is about nine and a half minutes long. In Paris, it's about 10 and a half minutes long. And then at Disneyland, Matthew, how long do you think the Disneyland one is? I'm thinking like 13 and a half minutes long. Close. 15 and a half minutes. Jeez. That's almost double. That was uh, Walt's original vision of the attraction. It was a lot more decked out, pretty pretty filled out with a lot of, wow. lot of things. And kind of speaking to the length and the size of that attraction at opening by the numbers that I was able to find online, the ride is said to have had 119 different characters. That includes 54 animals and 75 pirates and villagers. And it's also worth noting that of the 75 pirates and villagers, they only created 30 unique heads. So... If you look close enough, there's like different makeup and different things over some of the faces, but some of the pirates do share the same face, just dressed up a little differently. Copy and paste, copy and I feel like I've noticed that, but I've always just thought about it in the sense of like you're going from scene to scene. So it makes sense that you're following some of the same pirates like through different scenes. But that was probably my brain just being like, 
Just don't notice. Just cover up the Disney magic. <laughs> yeah, it's really weird. There's like triplets uh, that are pirates that are in different parts of this town. I believe it. I believe it. Talking about the animatronics a little bit more, when the attraction was completed at the time in Disneyland, the most complex animatronic of that time period, even more complex than Mr. Lincoln, was the auctioneer pirate. If you look at how the auctioneer pirate moves, he moves in a way that's almost human. It's like a very fluid motion. There was a new technology at that time called Sarcos, S-A-R-C-O-S, that the point of that technology was to allow for anticipating the end of a movement and cushioning it to stop and make the motions more fluid. Got it. Okay. And so that was like the first application of that technology, making that animatronic very advanced for its time. Another animatronic that is very advanced that kind of came later down the line, it's rumored that the animatronic for Red in the same scene is actually the same animatronic for the Wicked Witch of the West from the Great Movie Ride. Now, this has not been confirmed. This is a very widely accepted fan theory, okay. but there haven't been any official sources that have confirmed this. The face on the animatronic is obviously a different face, but many think by the way that she moves, it looks very similar to the complex motions that the Wicked Witch of the West animatronic could do. I think that makes sense, and it I don't know the exact timelines, but it feels in my head, it seems like it lines up. Yeah, I think the timelines would line up. And I, I don't really know what I think about that theory. I think, you know, there is a rich history of Disney reusing animatronics in different attractions. Right. And so I think it's certainly plausible. Yeah. Talking about some of the deeper lore of this attraction as well, some of the bones that made this attraction. Matthew, in the ride description, I mentioned the song Yo-Ho, A Pirate's Life for Me. Correct. Yes, you did. I didn't realize that that song was made for this ride. I didn't realize it, but it doesn't surprise me. I thought that that was just like a pirate thing that they incorporated, but no, it was specifically made for this ride. It is the official theme of Pirates of the Caribbean. And that brings you to question, did the pirates have any family-friendly songs, because I'm assuming they didn't. <laughs> it's like that uh, Key and Peel sketch where they're pirates and yep. they're... <laughs> no, that's a good point. It's funny, too, to look at the roots for the song, like Yo-Ho, A Pirate's Life for Me. The music for it, written by George Bruins, and then the lyrics were written by Xavier Atencio, or X Atencio. They did get their origins for some of the lyrics and like the bass elements from the song from an old sea shanty called Dead Man's Chest that is actually from Robert Louis Stevenson's 1881 novel Treasure Island. Okay. I think it's also fun that Disney's adaptation of Treasure Island, Treasure Planet, there's a part where the robot Ben is singing Yo-Ho, A Pirate's Life for Me, and it kind of like comes full circle of references in that little bubble. That's perfect. With that Imagineer Exitensio, it is also worth noting he wrote the script for The Haunted Mansion. He wrote the script for Pirates of the Caribbean. He also wrote the Grim Grinning Ghost song with The Haunted Mansion. Classic. And he actually is the original voice for the pirate skull at the beginning of the ride that speaks to guests as they usher through. Oh, we love a multi-talented person. His voice is not the one used in the attraction now. The voice of the skull now in the attraction is voiced by possibly my favorite voice actor of all time, James Arnold Taylor. My favorite role for him is the voice of Obi-Wan in Star Wars The Clone Wars. He's also the voice of Johnny Test. Oh, okay. And, surprise, surprise, he's the voice of Captain Jack Sparrow in Kingdom Hearts 2. That all tracks, that all lines up. So he's got some uh, some pirate roots in the Disney pirate mythology. Talking more about a couple of the voices behind the attraction, the mayor's wife that had the scream of getting shot, then getting startled that we talked about earlier, is voiced by June Foray, who is also the voice of Lucifer the Cat from Cinderella. The grandmother in Mulan 
and oddly enough, Cindy Lou Who from the original Grinch cartoon. Oh gosh, okay. So if you want to hear the voice of Cindy Lou Who getting shot, apparently <laughs> you can catch that in the original Pirates of the Caribbean. We'll have to go back and edit that in. Put that in the movie. <laughs> Put the scream in there. Oh. The original concept art for the attraction was made by Disney Imagineer Mark Davis. He is also the famous animator that designed Cruella de Vil, Maleficent, and Tinkerbell. And he actually has a lead role in the Jungle Cruise attraction, but I am going to leave that as a little tease to next week's episode. But Mark Davis really helped to set the tone and the story for the attraction. Many of the scenes in the final ride, including the prisoners beckoning to the dog with the key, were directly taken from his original drawings. Walt Disney himself had a very heavy hand in picking the drawings for which ideas for the concept art would actually be brought to life. Mark's wife, Alice Davis, was in charge of the costuming for all the animatronics. And there's actually this really cute story that she wanted to make copies of all the animatronics costumes. And Disney said, no, it's going to take too long. Like, just make one. And then she just kind of off on her own was like, I'm going to make two. <laughs> and so she, she made two. A month and a half after opening, the attraction actually caught fire. Several of the animatronics had their clothes burned and their hats damaged by the sprinkler. And the Disney team was like, oh, we're going to have to shut this down for a month. Like, how quickly can you get these animatronics reclothed? And she was like, eh, give me 30 minutes. Wow. Wow. What a baller. And it's funny, with that saving the day, she set the standard for the future. Now there are three backups of every single costume in the ride that are kept in storage in case there is an event like that that happens again. It only makes sense. Like, I don't understand why you wouldn't make at least one backup. <laughs> it's crazy. She has this part where she's talking in a documentary that it sounds like they said, oh, it's a time thing. Like, we don't have the time for you to make the extra costumes. And from her perspective, she's like, well, I'm making the costumes. It really doesn't take that much time to make an extra one. Like, right. I'm just going to do it and ask for uh, forgiveness rather than permission. And it worked out. Fair. Alice Davis has another very famous route in the attraction. When they made the pirate animatronics, they were... Let's just say they were completely anatomically correct. Okay. When they put the clothes on the animatronics, there were certain parts of the male animatronics that were a bit more apparent than they had meant for them to be. And so Alice Davis took it upon herself to chop a bunch of parts off so kids weren't scarred for life. What a baller. I thought that that was just a weird rumor. And then I saw footage of her in a documentary actually talking about this and saying that it was <gasps> oh, real. Oh, man. Blew my mind. Why would you even like, but <laughs> why? <laughs> so it was it was Blaine Gibson and Rudolph Vargas that sculpted a lot of the figures. And apparently that was like part of their process was making them as realistic as possible to kind of get like immersive into that part of the attraction. Okay. All right. But- we can't talk about the Imagineers forever. If any of our listeners want to hear any more of the awesome stories from these legendary Disney Imagineers that worked alongside Walt himself back in the day, I highly encourage you to check out the David O'Neill documentary on Pirates of the Caribbean. We'll include a link down in the description for you to watch the whole hour and a half long documentary on YouTube if you choose. Matthew, I know this is a ton of fun facts. I got a couple more for us real quick. The spooky side of this attraction, kind of stemming off of Mickey's Not So Scary, that you alluded to earlier in the episode. Matthew, what have you heard that's been spooky about this attraction? Well, I've heard that uh, Walt's either skeleton or ashes is somewhere in this ride. That's what I've heard. <laughs> so there is kind of a piece of truth and a lot of fiction to that specific rumor. As was all rumors. So to my knowledge, there is no part of Walt's body that was ever a part of this attraction. But there were real skeletons that were used at the Disneyland attraction. Oh, okay. Apparently, the story was that at the time, Imagineers couldn't make fake skeletons that looked real enough. And so they decided, well, if we can't make them look real enough, we got to get real skeletons for this ride. So they actually reached out to a local college, UCLA, that had donated skeletons for the ride. Now, at this point in time, 
many of the skeletons have been replaced by fakes. At the other versions of the attraction that opened Magic Kingdom and onward, all of them are fake skeletons. There's no real ones. There is a rumor that there is a skull above the headboard of one of the pirate skeletons' beds. That single skull is still a real skull at the Disneyland attraction. Wow. Okay. The attraction is also noted to be haunted. Oh. At the Magic Kingdom version of the attraction, guests have seen a ghost that is referred to as George the Ghost lurking in the attraction at different points in time. And George the Ghost is actually a part of the handbook if you are a cast member there, that it is a rule that you must say goodnight to George every night before closing the attraction, or else George is going to be mischievous and he will make the attraction break down multiple times. So that's why the ride is always closed. <laughs> the ride is always broken down for one reason or another. It's always George, man. Always George. All right, Matthew. This attraction had a lot of fun facts about it. It did. We had a lot to talk about for Pirates of the Caribbean. I want to end our fun facts with talking about, you guessed it, our hidden Mickeys. There's not too many hidden Mickeys on this attraction. And these will be specifically for the Disneyland attraction that I'm going to be talking about. Okay. When you start the ride, you come down the waterfall and you pass a little island on your right. Next to an open treasure chest, there are three little seashells in the sand that make out a hidden Mickey. As you're leaving the room, there's actually a hidden Goofy. Oh. There is this big cavern rock as you're leaving the room that if you catch it at the right angle, it makes a silhouette of Goofy's head. Garsh. That hasn't been confirmed by Disney, but there are so many fans about this being Goofy. I decided to include it. I can see it. I don't know that it's the most convincing Goofy in the world, but it's fun. Like, you know. You know, three concentric circles, man. It's the same thing, man. People want to see it. Might as well just don't harsh their vibe. If they want to see Goofy, they see Goofy. They see Goofy, man. The other hidden Mickeys that we have in the treasure room near the beginning of the attraction, to the right of the skeleton, there's a big treasure chest. If you look at the lock on the treasure chest, it features a very hard-to-find hidden Mickey. Classic three-circle key. When you're passing the Conquistadors fort with Captain Barbosa firing on the fort, one of the cannonball holes in the wall actually makes out a hidden Mickey. And then the most famous one, when you get to the gunpowder room, if you look to the left of the room towards the back of the ride vehicle, there's two chest plates of armor on the wall. And one of them features a very clear hidden Mickey. Heck yeah. And those are our hidden Mickeys for the attraction. And so with that, from our hidden Mickeys for the attraction, I want to close us out with some ride tips. Matthew, before I go through just a couple of my general tips for the attraction, do you have any tips off the top of your head that you want to talk about with uh, Pirates of the Caribbean? I mean, there's not anything specific other than this is just, it is a water ride and it is indoors. So there are the hot summer days, especially down in Florida, that I would say that this is a good ride to wait for. You know, it's a nice little break. You're sitting down, that sort of thing. But other than that, you know, I would say ride it whenever it is open because my experience, it does go down. Not, maybe it's not always down, but there are some times where it's down multiple times a day. So definitely want to um, make sure to keep an eye on that, that sort of thing. But that's what I've got. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree going with the ride being closed down. A lot of resources for park tips give the really classic tip. If you want to ride the attraction with a lower rate, go to it at either the beginning or end of the day within the last, either the first two or the last two hours of the park opening and closing. There is a tip that I would stray away from going there first because this ride actually has a pattern of being temporarily unavailable first thing in the morning. Yep. So it's not a good one to bank on to go as your first attraction. If you're going to the Disneyland attraction, if you sit in the front row, you're probably going to get wet coming down the waterfall. So if you don't want to get wet, I wouldn't sit in the front seat of this attraction. You can also get wet on the Disney World attraction with some of the cannonballs exploding in the water on either side of you when you're passing Barbosa's boat. 
but you're not going to get like splash mountain wet, just like a little splash from the water, if anything. When you're waiting in the queue, there is a strategy that if you have to split and go either left or right, go left for the shorter wait time. Yep. It's kind of like a common principle that a lot of people are going to choose to go right instead. And the last tip I have for y'all, you might have heard of a little attraction at Disney World that accompanies this ride called A Pirate's Adventure Treasures of the Seven Seas. This is a little treasure hunt that guests can compete to win a prize. Essentially, you have to like go through these little missions and collect treasure finder cards. And after you collect five, you'll be able to get your hands on a sixth and final card that is signed by Captain Jack Sparrow himself with a little note to you. This used to allow guests to win a free fast pass for the ride. It doesn't do that anymore. Of course. So if you have any ride tip books that are telling you to do this little fun game to get a fast pass for the ride, you can't do that anymore. But I wouldn't say it's a complete waste of time. You get your cool little Captain Jack Sparrow signed souvenir. So if that's something you want to pursue, it's still a fun thing that you can do over in Adventureland that's Pirates of the Caribbean themed. Just can't get that fast pass like you used to be able to. And if anybody has one of those cards, I'd love to see pictures of it. Feel free to send them our way because I'd love to see that sort of thing. That's cool stuff. I would love to see those as well because I have not completed the pirate treasure hunt myself. So I do not have the special signed card from Captain Jack. Fake pirates fan right here. Fake pirates fan. (laughs) Well, that cue went faster than expected. We hope you enjoyed the episode and learned something new about this wonderful ride. As always, we'd love to hear your experiences with this attraction or any fun facts you have. Feel free to join our Discord server and join the conversation or shout at us on Twitter or Instagram at q for 2 That's Q-U-E-U-E underscore F-O-R underscore T-W-O. You can also drop a comment on our YouTube channel. All of the links can be found in the episode description below. Now go catch that ride and we'll see you in the next q for 2 Dead men tell no tales.